Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry, while almost certainly talking about COVID as well. Today, alongside epidemiology, we're going to talk about being a challenger brand. Our guests are John Schoolcraft, who's Global Chief Creative Officer for Oatly, and Jen Charon, who's the co-founder for Lonehood. You almost certainly know this already, but Oatly is a Swedish-based company who produced dairy alternatives using, um, in case you didn't guess, oats. And from humble beginnings in the 1990s, they've seen a meteoric rise in popularity in recent years, taking on the milk industry in Sweden and the process. You wouldn't want to do that. Lonehood's a new brand, founded just last year, and is hoping to redefine the idea of fast fashion by offering an online platform to encourage people to rent out their wardrobe items in order to save clothes from landfill. So, John and Jen, welcome to the podcast. Hi. And we'll start, I think, with a question to John, which says, when you joined Oakley in 2012, you essentially did away with the idea of a marketing department and replaced it with the wonderfully named Oakley Department of Mind Control, which is either um, you know, an act of pure folly or agreeably honest. Uh, why did you do this? And how fundamental would you say that's been to the success of the brand? I think it's a little bit of both, actually. So here's the deal. It's like I worked in advertising for quite a while, and I realized that most of the agency and client relationships were not built on trust. They were built on, you know, pitching an idea and selling an idea. And I also found that like a lot of marketing departments were, are full of people that like, they're not really skilled at like encouraging and inspiring and approving and buying great ideas. Instead, they're kind of like trying to find something that's relatively safe, that meets all the research that they've done. And so I kind of reached a point where it's like, the quality of my work wasn't going to get any better if I was working with a marketing department or basically marketing directors had ruined all my best work. And I just like was tired of it. So my friend, Tony Peterson, who's this, who became CEO, I've known him for 20 years. He calls me up and he's like, um, so I'm the CEO of an oat milk company. Can we do anything with it? And I'm like, uh, oat milk, that sounds disgusting. So, um, I'm really happy for you, but I'm sorry you're going to have to take this one on your on your own. And then I thought for a second and thought like, wow, maybe this is a chance to prove that we don't need marketing departments. So I just asked him like, okay, I'll, I'll do it, but uh, I want to get rid of the marketing department entirely and replace it with a creative department. And he said, yeah, sure, whatever, do whatever you want, you know. 
And so I, I think that the creative department's like sitting in the middle of the company. Like there's, a, it's like in the middle of the company. So we brief ourselves, we do the work and we approve everything ourselves. And that model is, is probably quite different from what's definitely in the food industry, but in, in most any other, other, other companies. And I would think it's like, you know, you put, you take the chance to take the risk to put a creative department in the middle of a company that's instrumental in, in our entire success since 2012. And interestingly, how broad does your remit go? So are you involved in new product development and so forth? Yeah, we're sitting in, you know, supply meetings, uh, innovation meetings, product development meetings. So the creatives are forced to look at every single part. It's not just like, oh, you're talking to sales because they want to sell some, sell some products. It's like, we're sitting in all the meetings of, of, of the company. And then we pull out and extract what we think, oh, that's an interesting idea. So let's create something on that. And so, you know, it's like a brief. We don't really have briefs because a brief is supposed to give a creative context who's working on a bunch of different clients. But we're working on one thing. So everyone's brief the whole time. So we're just finding things that we find interesting. First of all, we're very involved in the products and innovation and and you know even supply but then when we're gonna like create something to share with the world we just extract the things that we find interesting and start working on them and if things change in the middle we just change course and if there's a better idea we just do something different so it's a very very open system but it's more structured than you think at the same time it's interesting because there's always a trade-off with briefs which is you want them to be focused but at the same time by focusing a brief on a specific period in time and a specific deadline and objective, you do massively narrow the solution space. And my complaint about creative agencies has always been that they tend to narrow the solution space to those solutions in which bought, paid for communication plays a part. And I also have a problem with the way that marketing is often perceived. This isn't the case if you're in Unilever or P&G or whatever, or one of those long-established packaged goods companies. Not such a problem. But in a huge number of companies, marketing, the very word marketing, is conflated with Marcoms. And it's assumed to be basically a comms function. And as a result, it gets demoted because it loses its, it becomes a cost rather than a, a center for value creation. And it loses its central position in decision-making because the communication strategy is assumed to be subordinate to other ideas which are conceived elsewhere. And that's always worried me about marketing, that it's done a very bad job of marketing the word marketing. Now, you know, it's not, a, like I said, you know, in Unilever, your chief executive's done a stint in marketing. That's not really a problem. But in large numbers of companies, particularly B2B companies, by the way, you're in danger of becoming seen as glorified reprographics. And of course, we had Mark Evans on the show fairly recently, where he said that someone from data analysis was put on secondment to marketing. And his first comment was, I don't know what I'm going to do here because I'm rubbish at drawing. And Mark suddenly had this kind of terrifying um, epiphany that that's how marketing is viewed once you go elsewhere in the organisation. Yeah, I've worked in a company owned by a, an American entrepreneur and uh, she called the creative department the art department, which I, I sort of feeds into that idea a bit. I don't know if that's it's a kind of a, an American term that... Um, I always found slightly uncomfortable because I didn't really think we were the art department. Yeah, I, I remember talking to Jeremy Bullmore and somebody used the word Marcoms. And unusually for Jeremy, he went kind of semi-apoplectic and said, you should ban the word. 
because once marketing get becomes considered essentially exclusively confined to questions of communication then uh, it you know its influence is more or less dead within large numbers of companies you know unless the company spends disproportionately heavily on media then you know the last thing you want to be called is marcoms but i think this is a i think this has a lot to do with the like the position of the ceo like you have to have a cmo because the cmo is a filter for a ceo who doesn't really understand the whole idea of what you're what you're doing so tony who's the ceo he's he's great at all this and he just says put the creativity in the center of the company and sometimes we do an idea that turns out to be you know something arty and you draw it and it's communication you stick it on the side of a building but other times it can just be like so nobody is putting the carbon footprint of your actual product on the carton. If you think about it, the nutritional panel on the side of, of products was legislated in the U.S. in 1994. Before that, it was like no one knew was, what was inside a, a package whatsoever. And now we, we're trying to make all these sustainability decisions, but we have no idea what the impact of a, of a product is. So for us, it could just as well be our media planner who says, why don't you just put the carbon footprint right on the package and that kind of affects the entire company we had one where we were looking at the question of food waste and we said actually uh, one of the best ideas here which one of my colleagues had was when you have a best before date or a use by date don't just have the date put the day of the week because if you see monday you go i've got the weekend to to use that i can relax if you see friday you need to speed up a bit people generally know the day of the week i haven't got a clue what today's date is just to be absolutely clear and it's often very very simple insights like that that make the difference you don't always have to spend money and your packaging is fantastic by the way i mean you know similarly that's highly communicative i mean in, in the case of jen um actually i'll ask you both the same question because both of you in a sense um, got involved in a business which your friend's reaction was, you know, what, drinkable oats? Well, good luck with that one, because it sounds kind of repellent um, at first glance. Uh, again, secondhand clothing before someone invented the word vintage. In both cases, you're up against initially fairly strong. It, it's one of those ideas I place, you know, alongside, say, Dyson, where, you know, the crazy thing with Dyson, and I always tell this story, is, look, if Dyson had come to me 15 years ago and said, I think there's a market for a £750 vacuum cleaner, I basically would have, you know, kind of made polite comments and told him to leave. And you would have said, look, vacuum cleaners, they're a distress purchase. Um, uh, you know, people only buy them when their old one breaks. Anybody who can spend £750 on a vacuum cleaner probably employs a cleaner, so they don't even do their own hoovering. Um, and in both cases, I think, you know, you know, when initial investment pitches must have happened, there must have been a fairly high degree of scepticism. How much of the success, I think, or the growing success in both categories, and they're both disruptive categories, how much is due to marketing efforts and how much of it is due to just spotting a pre-existing trend? Um, I think for us, it's a pre-existing trend or it's something that's happening and the business model there are not business models to support it so um just to talk about Dyson I mean and this applies to all of us is that you have to make a product that's sexy and that people want and that people get kind of perceived value from like so with all of these things any new product but and, and it, but this is also the case with environmentally friendly products they've got to have that same perceived value and sexiness you know it's the same with the electric cars if we started with at the lower end of the market there's not going to be the same uptake because 
you know it's not desirable and aspirational you have to start at the top end you have to have formula one using electric cars and really and celebrities driving teslas and then it trickles down i mean we we all know that and i think it's the same with oatly to <laughs> to speak of your business uh you know you go straight to the baristas to make the best coffee with with oat milk and and that becomes a desirable thing for us i think just to a uh, slight correction of what you said um with Lonehood, it's not really about uh, secondhand clothing. It, it's more about the sharing economy. So uh, I may rent something from a woman in my neighbourhood. It's not depreciated and devalued because perhaps she only bought it last week and she's only worn it once herself. I'll rent it, wear it, and it will go back to her and she still values it and she still wears it. Um, so there's, it's, there, there's a slight difference there. My feeling is like it was a bit different. Like Oakley's been around since like 1994, you know, and it's been even in the UK since, I don't know, uh, end of of the 90s. It's just like nobody knew about it. So, you know, we found this, there's all of a sudden we have this product and it's like, wow, it's, it's really nutritional. It's full of fiber and it's great for the planet. It's just that nobody had found a way to explain it or, or share this with anyone. It's sitting on the dusty aisle in the ambient aisle. And no one's going to find it. The packaging was was probably some of the worst packaging ever made for consumer goods. It, it was just, you know, pouring from the right. We always joke that it looked like a Dutch multinational, like every other product. And so no one saw it or recognized it. So for us, I don't think, I think it's a combination of incredibly good timing and then just making people aware that there's a product out there that's really good for them and that's actually really good for the planet at the same time. There is this wonderful thing, isn't there, where ballsy overconfidence, there's unconsciously, and we could all fall into the same trap, if we're selling something which is a substitute for something else, okay, the huge danger is we become apologetic about it. And you become kind of almost defensive. And I always thought there are examples that in disruptive brands, often the founder or someone instrumental within the company has a kind of deranged overconfidence. So beyond meat, is a brilliant framing of a vegetarian meat substitute because it doesn't say this is nearly as good as meat, but without the meat. It actually says this is more meaty than meat itself, for example. Tesla, you know, you, you, you know, I mean, I'm sure Musk talks about the planet a bit, um, but also he, he develops a roadster which has the most batshit insane performance that you could possibly imagine. And the truck looks like something out of Blade Runner and so on. And in your case, I think being insanely overconfident I, I i've spent loads and loads of time puzzling over the low adoption of video conferencing which is a very timely question now and i suddenly realized they sold it as the poor man's version of air travel not the rich man's phone call and they sold it as it's not as good as flying there but it's cheaper now of course a lot of business travel is actually costly signaling it's showing how much you care you know i got up at four o'clock this morning to make this meeting in frankfurt because of you you know and so anything that seems like a kind of ersatz or poor substitute for and so the language of self-denial you know sort of starts to permeate the brand behavior and i think when you do that you're kind of doomed and i think with with vintage clothing and shared clothing i mean obviously the danger you face is anything that's a cheaper alternative to something else is in danger of looking like a compromise and not a choice well i think it's um in terms of that confidence we could say that we're faster than fast fashion currently is we give you more uh, uh breadth of choice 
And it is at a cheaper price, but it means that you can profit from the clothes that you have in your wardrobe. It means that you can actually buy up and access better. So it's not about accessing cheaper fashion. It's like accessing better quality, higher quality uh, fashion. And you get the buzz of knowing that you're doing something that's responsible and ethical as well as being fun. Yeah, no, no. I, I th- I, so I, I think it is interesting, which is I, I, mean, I in my book, I call this scenting the soap, which is if you have a brand that actually brings a major societal benefit, as both of yours do, but they also bring a selfish benefit, it's probably better to lead on the selfish benefit. And the point I made is that you didn't get 1920s soap advertising by Unilever saying, wash with pear soap and help prevent a cholera outbreak. Okay. <laughs> uh, what actually happened is you more or less said, if you don't wash and you're not clean and sweet scented, you'll, you know, it was very Darwinian, you'll die single and alone. <laughs> you know, it was the kind of yeah. best. But actually leading on the selfish benefit and then using the societal benefits as support makes more sense ultimately than doing it the other way around because the problem with the environmental message as a lead is it tends to imply some form of self-sacrifice and that's you know that's a failing in the human mind in a sense in that we tend to go well if it's better for somebody else it's worse for me that shows a failure in win-win thinking in the human mind but then a lot of human minds have a lot of failing I think for us, COVID has brought that into focus. So obviously pre this, there was, okay, maybe the volume we were t- had in our minds was about the environmental positivity was a little higher, but post this and now we're now in a recession we're going to be in a recession and actually that message about like monetizing your wardrobe um uh and uh making your wardrobe work for you being an entrepreneur having your own small business off the back of this uh becomes much more important and much more relevant so that kind of those selfish benefits uh are something that we'll be speaking about more than we had anticipated because the economic landscape changed Just for the audience, what are the characteristics of your main clothes, lenders, stroke renters? And also, what are the characteristics of the clothes and bags and so forth that tend to be most borrowed and lent? Um, Well, very classically for fashion, there's kind of an 80-20 split across men and women. We see that in retail as well. Um, Our kind of pioneers are tending to be already involved in fashion in some way. They're fashion, I hate the term, but fashion insiders. So people who work within the fashion industry, which is a huge number of people. I mean, this globally, there's a stat that says one in six people on the planet works in the fashion supply chain in one way or another. So it's actually quite a, a lot of people. Um, they're renting like occasion wear and dresses are uh, obvious go-to pieces, stuff for, like weddings and occasions. But we're also uh, renting whole looks. So we're really appealing to people um, to be able to use our platform as a place for them to express themselves creatively. You know, our loners are stylists in their own rights and photographers in their own rights, whether that's professionally or at as a kind of a hobby. You know, it's the kind of this generation's version of the bedroom DJ and um, is the kind of bedroom photographer, bedroom stylist. So they're kind of in, having fun with that, employing that. But it's, it's not just single items, but whole looks. So they might put together an outfit, which is like a trouser suit and a bag and a pair of shoes and rent the whole lot out together. So a little bit of it is, is actually not only renting clothing, but renting expertise as well. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And when you go onto the platform, you can follow particular loners who whose look you admire 
whose size is similar to yours so that you know that their wardrobe is going to fit you. So there's a massive social aspect to this. And it's kind of, again, uh, people are looking at how they can leverage their uh, social media following and it, it plays into that. Another really interesting area is kind of um, kind of resonates with men more actually is adventure gear. So if you're looking at uh, ski wear and snowboarding gear, which is a really good example of something that costs quite a bit of money to buy outright and then sits in your wardrobe for 50 weeks of the year. So you can uh, rent those out for you know a week at a time here or there at around 20% of the retail price. And before you know it, you're really bringing down the cost of a new jacket um, and rent it out five, six times, and you're getting into the realms of full-on making profit on the things that you've bought. And the, the interesting thing, of course, ultimately, which is um, both, I would argue, something that benefits both the user and the wider environment, is it completely changes the economics of what clothes you should buy, doesn't it? Because the idea of clothing as an investment, which I always thought of as basically self-delusion, you know, this is an investment piece, okay? And so um, I, I always thought that was a brilliant way of deluding yourself that you were actually pissing 700 pounds up the wall, but you were reframing it as an investment. You know, it kind of becomes, I mean, with, with blokes, my guess would be there's a whole opportunity for watches here. Yeah, for sure. Um, those kinds of uh, high-end accessories that are kind of signifiers of like, well, something you want to wear to a job interview, on a date, anything like that. There's definitely, you know, the watch is the handbag for guys, right? Um, but, you know, that's thinking about millennials and up. When you're looking at Gen Z and down, guys are as flamboyant and creative with what they wear as women are and then of course there's a real blurring of gender as well um so you have uh, guys wearing what might be sold as women's wear or clothing that's not gendered i mean i, I have previously worked for mosbros and like half of their business or most of their profit comes from rental so men are like men get rental more than women do it's actually in some ways it's less of a sell because if you're, you're looking at tuxedos you're looking at like wedding wear you're looking at ski wear and things like that these are things that men are like they rent them already this is not a it's not a huge shift for women it's 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 going to be it's a bit more of a shift but we that behavior is kind of there it's just not a business to match it so uh women have now have like this really like fleeting relationship with clothes where they're buying it cheap and getting rid of it they're buying the buys in return thing where people buy it just to take the photograph and send it back they never intended to hold on to it uh they're buying to sell because they're buying to sell on depop or in the states on thread up and which comes back to what you're saying about the investment piece so people are you know buying to sell they might be buying vintage cheap in their local charity shop they're styling it, adding value through their styling and photography and selling it on at a profit. Maybe they never wore that piece. They really are just like buying and selling. They're running a business. And um, I know over the last year, from in my own mind, they've definitely been looking at, um, at pieces at designer stuff, which I would previously have thought was out of my budget and been looking at it again in a new light and thinking actually well if I buy that and I rent it out three times that 250 pound dress is not so expensive anymore and you can reframe it even further because I've always made you know one of my justifications for fashion brands is that brand value 
survives the half-life of brand value if you own a Chanel piece is surprisingly long. You'll always be able to sell that, I think it's fair to say. If you keep it in reasonable condition, then 50 years hence, you'll probably find a market for it. Absolutely. Whereas, of course, fast fashion is, you know, it's a bit like buying a new car. It loses about, you know, three quarters of its value the second you take it out of the bag. Exactly. And so reframing people to buy fewer things, but of a higher quality with more brand value inherent in the thing. The great thing about brand value, of course, is it doesn't require any material resources to produce. So the higher the ratio of brand value to material value, in many ways, the better for everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, we're obviously our focus is, on, you know, what we're doing as a business, but we want, we are very conscious of how that plugs into the rest of the industry. So by making clothing something that can be profitable to people and um, for them to perceive value in what they own, so they look after it, so they keep it for longer, they buy better. We hope that that means that people will, as you say, well, as I, I'm going to quote Vivian Westwood, which is, buy less, choose well and make it last. And like, that's the kind of basis of sustainable fashion that, you know, before you do anything else, do that. Sustainable fashion costs more. It's more expensive because the materials are better and the people in the supply chain are treated better. So it should cost more. Um, And it's difficult to get people to spend more when they're used to accessing looks for so little. You know, fashion is now currently throwaway. It's like, I'll buy it, I'll wear it once, I'll chuck it. I don't care. But if we flip that on its head, then, then we can really start to sort of persuade people um, not only to adopt uh, rental models in the sharing economy, but to really engage and embrace sustainability and ethical fashion as well. There's an interesting thing, actually, which I, I interests me, and I, I'll open this up to John as well, which is when you want people to change to a more environmentally sustainable behaviour, one of the great things you both offer when you think about it is you offer people the chance to substitute one behaviour with another rather than asking people to stop doing something. And you know, I think one of the great mistakes, the uh, you know, from a marketing point of view, you know, one often mistake the environmental movement makes is it tends to become best known for its most extreme adherents, who are people who, you know, essentially, it's worth remembering, if you're an environmental campaigner, you're essentially paid to practice self-denial, aren't you? You know, that's your, that, that's in a sense your job. And quite often by showcasing people who essentially, you know, adopt the most extreme measures, you fail to allow people to see how you can simply migrate from one thing to a very similar thing and achieve, you know, pretty much 80% of the same effect of giving something up entirely. I think what you have managed to do brilliantly is you've managed to stop Oatly having the feel of inferior milk, you know, for people who are lactose intolerant, you're forced to make do with Oatly. And how, how important do you think the barista exposure was to that? Well, I think the thing is, is that most change is is sideways. And if you're going to offer someone a sideways change, it's like not really that interesting. So our whole approach was like, we have to, you know, there has to be an upgrade to it. So again, we're, we're oat milk. No one knows what it is. There's so many other plant-based uh, products on the market. So how do you ever explain, explain this? And our thought with the barista was that that is the cultural centerpiece of society. You go to the coffee shop and you order something and it's a public environment and the barista helps you make the choice. And so it's hard to get someone to try oat milk if they, you know, if there's no reason to do so. You can't stand in a store and pour up two glasses and say, oh, this is oat milk. It's a slightly grayer. It's not going to taste like milk. 
So our whole thing was if the product was it microfoams to perfection, it was by far the best plant-based milk when it comes to coffee. And then it like paired really nicely with coffee. So, you know, it was a process of going in, of talking to all the baristas of, we have a team of baristas that are talking to the baristas. And it was just a matter of giving them the product like we do with everything. Like we don't, we're not interested in selling. We're just like, if you like it, that's cool. If you don't like it, that's cool too. So I think we just allowed the baristas to work with it, gave them support. And then they found like, this is the first, you know, plant-based milk that doesn't screw up their pour. And so they started recommending it to all their customers. And again, that's the secret to anything is you don't have to sell. It's getting supported in a different way. So. And you also spotted something which the milk industry didn't spot. So I've got two Nespresso machines and three milk frothers at home. This is, you know, a bit sad, but there we go. I should start renting them out, shouldn't I? Um, but um, the crazy thing is I was always wondering why no milk brand had produced specifically a variant of milk for frothing. Because actually... Um, it's almost a matter of luck. You'll open one bottle of milk and it'll froth up beautifully. And then the next bottle, even from the same brand, will be remarkably disappointing. And I always thought the milk industry, and I suppose brands like Arla, missed that trick. Well, if you look in Sweden, Arla actually had, I mean, they had a barista edition. I don't know when it was, sometime in the 90s. They actually, I mean, milk was decreasing and they brought it back with coffee when it was like, you know, cafe au lait. Or something like that. So they 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 actually did have a, a, a product. It's just like if you I don't know today milk is just become it's it's just like we don't need milk like before we needed cows to make actually milk for us, but we don't. There's more efficient, more sustainable means, and so I think that if you present that to people and the product tastes just as good, like oat milk tastes just as good in coffee as as cow's milk, then there's no sacrifice. There's no you know lateral change and then the other thing is i think that you need to like let people know when it comes to like sustainability that it's just a series of small changes yeah of course they can change their entire lifestyle but you can also just like every time you have a cappuccino or a latte you make it with oat milk and it's just like these small changes add up you know it's like once you tell people it's 69 percent less carbon emissions in an oat milk than a, than the milk they can relate like wow that's a savings okay I'll do that because I like the taste too. So I, again, I, I don't think there's a logical piece there, but it's, it's, it's maybe a bit more emotional and it's just like you make it easy for them to change and then the product would be great. I totally agree with that. I think our equivalent, I suppose, is like, uh, you know, there's the boycott fashion movement and that's extreme. That's just like, just stop buying anything. Um, and that, that's not fun. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. It's quite hard to do. It's uh, it's not something that's very appealing to take part in. But uh, in addition to that, it doesn't actually change anything. I think there's a danger, which is not to say that sometimes the extremists aren't basically right, okay? You know, I, I, you know, I have a certain sympathy with some of their views, you know, which will surprise people who know me. But I have kind of 20% sympathy with their beliefs. But their execution and expression of those beliefs strikes me as sometimes self-defeating. So, for example, if you're very, very uh, towards one extreme in, say, the anti-fashion movement, you know, it's interesting, you know, Oatly could have become a kind of anti-milk movement, OK, which you didn't. All right. And one of the things you tend to do if you're towards the extreme is to signal to your peer group, which is people similarly extreme as you, your behavior becomes more and more extreme. And I think something that happens in politics, you judge how successful it is by how much it annoys people who disagree with you. And I think that's that's when every movement moves over that kind of line into self-defeatism, which is it's a bit like that debate in, in white men can't jump, which is do you want to win or do you want to look good? And sometimes what makes you look good among your peer group is a behaviour which actually doesn't help you win. I think it's really important that there's people saying this stuff because it sort of highlights what the issues are and brings attention to the issues. But it, it doesn't always offer a workable solution and it's requiring massive change. So like like John was saying, you need to offer people an easy, small, lots of small changes, lots of easy changes, lots of things that actually are enjoyable and beneficial to themselves. And oh, by the way, this is also like a good thing to do environmentally or ethically and so on. I think the order of those two things, David Ogilvy once rather brilliantly said, you know, your advertising should contain an excuse. And he literally calls it an excuse. So in other words, the consumer has a ready-made explanation if one of their friends says, why do you do this? And I think, I think the order in which you deliver your explanation, if you say it tastes great and also it's much better for the environment than milk is, okay, that will be interpreted very differently to if you say it's much better than the environment than milk, which the hearer, who is a milk drinker, will interpret maybe unconsciously, will interpret as criticism, like you're having a go at me or you're trying to be holier than me. And, and you know, you know, if I, try, if I owned a Tesla and tried to persuade a friend to buy a Tesla, I wouldn't fail to mention the environmental benefits, but I wouldn't lead on them. I just think there's so many way in, ways into that. Like, 
you you can you can just phrase things different different ways i mean again if you're working like oh we have a target group and we're going to segment this and we're going to speak to these people like this we don't do any of that we're like our target group is basically who's interested in what they put in their body and who's interested in having a planet to live on in the future and then you can just like your arguments can come from all different directions because it's like you just got to meet people with a different we're like consistently inconsistent in all our messaging because we just find it more interesting and and sometimes you can say like yeah 69 percent um less carbon emissions and other times you just want to you want to give them something else nonsensical maybe so that they just realize that there is something called open so i just i don't think there's like one way to do it i think there's like millions of ways to do it and a but lot you, of it so, yeah, i mean interestingly you're what's interesting to me about that is you know the purest marketer which is really a you know theory over practice. You have to be visually distinctive, and I accept that. And you know there are various rules to building a potent brand. But the idea that your message has to be absolutely monotonous, you know, it it was really I think designed around a media approach of the thirty second spot rather than the brand reality. Whereas Jeremy Bullmore said people build brands the way birds build nests from the scraps and straws they find lying around. So you don't have to be silent about the 69% point, but you just sold me, by the way, as a very distant relative of the Kiwi who invented the flat white, when you told me it microfoams better than milk, then, okay, I was I was effectively sold from that moment on. <laughs> um, so actually, it, you're, you're absolutely right, which is when you say we're almost purposefully um, varied in the actual content of the messaging. The style of the messaging, on the other hand, is very, very consistent. Absolutely. But I think there's a huge misconception that everything a brand does has to be liked by consumers. It's not like we're like looking for people to disagree with this, but it's like you can like it or you can not like it. Both things are, are cool. I think sometimes that criticism is much more interesting than praise. So we're playing with a lot of these different angles to create something that's that's interesting and we're like you know like i said consistently inconsistent or sometimes we're trying to be non-conceptual actually doing certain executions that stick out from everything else why because we can you know there's no one telling us you have to be on concept or everything has to be super tight we we can like do what we want and it becomes more interesting and more human that way which your best markets worldwide for adoption both of the category and of your own brand Sweden being a leading one, I imagine. But uh... Sweden, Finland, uh, the UK, obviously. Um, Germany's grown phenomenally. Uh, as soon as we launched in Holland, it took off. And then you've got the United States, where it grew so fast the minute that we came there that we will never be able to produce enough oat milk. Like, it doesn't matter how fast we build our factories. The, the, the demand will always, will always uh, help for them perform our supply and that's kind of like some people say like what's your kpi it's like i don't ever have any kpis i don't do any of those like we don't measure anything it's just like if you're never going to be able to make enough product that's a pretty good kpi i think that's fantastic i mean who do you see so do you see your competitor as milk much more than you see your competitor as other oat or hazel nut or whatever yeah, I don't think the, a lot of the other plant-based products, they, they just like, there's, they don't have the nutritional comparison that uh, equivalents than we do. And then they're not as sustainable. Like oats don't need water to grow. Almond milk, for example, it's like, it's like 10% of California's water resource. It's one almond and a liter of all. There's, there's like a lot of, we don't really look at it like that. Milk though is, is a bit different because basically oat milk uh, can replace cow's milk 
in almost every situation. And so there's the alternative or the or what we like to say the upgrade because because there's a uh, a sustainability factor to us and uh, to our product. So um, we but we don't really look at it that way. What we try to do basically is create some interesting communication so that people try it. And if people try it, they're either going to like it or not like it. If they don't like it, that's cool. But if they like it, they'll start to actually use it. And it's it's relatively simple, actually. You've turned criticism of your brand into a strength in a way in quite a few occasions. What determined you to do that? I mean, brands often become completely paranoid about criticism. And of course, you know, strong brands are to some extent slightly polarizing. What led you to adopt that approach? Was it just temperament or... No, but I just think it's like way more interesting to get credit criticism than praise. You know, it's like, so we ran a bunch of ads in like, like the Atlantic in the US and the New Yorker. And one of the ads would say like, you actually read this total success and showed our product. And we'll get like people that are right into us, like right into us and tell us, this is the worst ad I've ever seen. You're wasting the space. You should have told us about you know, the uniqueness of the product. Why didn't you tell us about this? And they send it off. And I always tell like this consumer response department, save all the criticism because it's so great because you realize, okay, so what's the process? Someone took 30 minutes out of their day, sat down at their laptop or their smartphone and started writing a complaint about how we do our ads. First of all, they've noticed it. The next time they go to the supermarket, they're probably going to say, that's the product that's so stupid. And maybe they'll buy it. <laughs> and if they buy it, then they're going to try it. And then they're going to read the size of the package and they'll learn more about it. So I just think that there's like, it's like the criticism is fine. The thing is, is I don't, I don't have anyone above me who I need to be worried about people complaining. So Tony, the CEO, he understands that's part of the process. And there's a, there's a wonderful power in, in not trying to make everyone happy. The other thing is maybe that we don't really care about selling oat milk. We're, we're more about trying to find up, you know, helping people make small changes in their lives. And the end result of that is creating, you know, a positive societal change. And so I think you can feel that in the brand is that they don't care about you really buying oat milk. They're into a bigger picture of trying to, you know, do something, do something positive. And then, Jen, how are you um, essentially getting cut through? Uh, you know, you're obviously in the very early days of doing what you're doing. Um, you know, whereas Oakley is not quite you know, a household name might be an overstatement, but it's uh, it's fairly familiar. You've got quite a long way to go. What do you see as your first steps? For us, it's going to, I suppose, but it's emerging out of the current situation. I mean, we can't uh, we can't tell people to uh, go around swapping clothes with each other at a time when it's not safe to do so, and people aren't going out. So there's a there's watch and respond and see what happens with COVID from that point of view. Um, I think that's what's quite nice is because we're, like we're creating this platform, and then it's as an element of handing it over to the loners and the borrowers and obviously it's not a free-for-all but there, there's going to be growth and development based on them we know for example like we're launching in london we know this market we're really excited to see how how it blossoms in somewhere like manchester or liverpool where there's a really different approach to like frankly going out on a friday or a saturday night london people just like carry on from work they're still wearing the same thing but in smaller cities people go home and get 
get ready to go out out so there's a much like higher turnover of fashion we're also um, in terms of our growth we expect to see hubs popping up internationally before we're there um, the fashion industry is very international uh, I mean in a way that uh, is heavily criticized from the point of view of fashion shows and the number of people who are flying globally that's that's one side of it the other side of it is that it's you know if you work in any fashion business in London you are working in an international team you've got people from all over the world so this the kind of idea of it will spread uh, internationally we would expect to see hubs popping up in what I would call like fashion cities. How do you do the distribution person to person? It's peer-to-peer so um, from that that point of view we're not limited you know we don't have a distribution center it's not based around uh no. infrastructure from that point of view so if you uh like we just did a podcast uh last week with some um girls in in lisbon and they were like oh we love this idea we, we want it here and it's like you can have it here you can have it there you know uh you can trade in euros on on the platform that's not a problem if you've got um it is likely to be our pioneers are kind of sort of people involved in the fashion industry people already interested in sustainable fashion of course that's a venn diagram there's you know the sweet spot in the middle and these people the, the kind of especially sustainable fashion is a niche within the fashion industry uh there's not so many of us and we're quite connected internationally and you've got people speaking on each other's podcasts and so on across like australia and the uk and the states and so on um and uh there are people who who want to take action and do something and 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 be part of it they're very excited to be part of it we have we speak to a lot of people who work in uh, let's call them traditional uh e-coms uh, businesses and and actually they, they they're they're asking to volunteer for us is there anything i can do for you can i use my skills for you because they actually want to offset the work they're doing for uh like standard fashion industry business models which they don't feel comfortable. It's very difficult. There's an awful lot of people who would love to work for a sustainable brand or a better brand. There's not enough jobs for the people who want to work in those kinds of businesses right now. Interesting. Yeah, that's very mm. interesting. So there's a kind of a residual group of people in the industry who feel extreme guilt for what, for their day job, essentially. Yeah, and that's where we've come from. The three of us have all uh, come from working in the fashion industry. And, and it's a it's a Pandora's box. Um, once you start learning about the impact of fashion, both environmentally and on people and on animals and, and so on, like the more you learn, the more you learn. And it, you find yourself in some kind of existential crisis. You're like, oh, my God, what am I doing? How do you establish trust from buyer to seller? So, you know, eBay obviously you know, had to pioneer its its rating system. We will also have that. We have that too. So rating systems. So there's a verification process in the first place. So I think along the lines of Airbnb from that point of view. So you create your account and it gets verified by us. You can link your account to your Instagram account. There's some, you know, so there's some checking going on. And then, of course, when you've um, done a transaction when you've done a rental back and forth both sides can review one another again think of uber ratings as well so if i uh, request to rent someone's dress and i've got a really shitty review or like a one star that person can say thanks but no thanks so you know as a borrower you want to behave well you want to keep your like uber rating up as it were 
Yeah, Uber had an amazing effect on me. I get I get my kids going, you know, for God's sake, get into the cab now. I don't want to drop below a <laughs> 4.9. Exactly. You know. Do you think, by the way, I mean, this is just a sideline question. Do you think there needs to be a debate about sustainable distribution as well as obviously sustainable manufacturing and use? Oh, hugely. Because, I mean, the only issue you do face is that obviously someone's got to transport these things. Their clothes aren't very heavy. They are. <laughs> they are. Well, I, you know, they're, not, they're not industrial plant, I was meaning. But yeah. Sure, sure. But I was just thinking about a heavy suitcase that you're trying to lug, you know. It adds up. It certainly adds up. And we're talking about contain. We're talking billions of tons of clothing that goes to landfill every year and um, distribution wise of course you've got everything from you know using robotics and so on to make things more efficient that's one thing uh what kind of vehicles get used certainly from our point of view because um the delivery may be from me on one side of hackney to somebody on the other side of hackney which can be done in person or using a bike for example but the huge problem that companies like ASOS have right now is that people, I don't, most people don't think about this, but you're like, okay, I ordered five things. I'm going to try them on. I'm going to keep one and send the rest back because they're using it as a kind of changing room, fitting room situation. But oftentimes the product is so cheap that it costs them more money to put it back into the system to repackage it, to put it back in cellophane, put it back into the distribution system. So it gets landfilled. So when you think, oh, it's no problem, I'm going to order six, try them on, send them back. They don't get sold, they get trashed because it's not 100% of the time, but this happens, this totally happens. And actually, people who send a lot of things back are also exploiting the people who don't. Yeah. As a bloke, I've probably sent two items of clothing back in 10 years. Um, it's something we blokes don't do. Blokes don't return clothing for some well, weird si- reason. sizing's a bit more simple for guys. Yeah, to be and frank. sizing's a lot more simple. You're right. Yeah, and um, uh, and we're not that bothered. We can only see about ten colours, so we don't, you know, so so that doesn't <laughs> really matter either. Um, but uh, no, it also strikes me that if you just take door to door distribution, you know, if I were in charge of the government, I'd set up a kind of nationwide open access locker to locker distribution system because it's delivery to the door that really adds the mileage that last mile you know actually distributing things between a network of four thousand lockers uses up remarkably little it's incredibly efficient in transport terms yeah for us that's something we would see in our future for sure um i mean there's already kind of um other companies that we could tap into for that you you have those at train stations in london and that is something that could definitely be done if people don't have the time or the will or whatever it is to meet someone in person they'd be able to use drop-off lockers I can totally see us especially at busy times around Christmas party season for example taking a pop-up shop in Old Street tube station or something like that and having that as a pick-up and drop-off destination because we know at Christmas it's going to be super busy because of all the parties that kind of uh, distribution is definitely something we're looking at and then future really looking at the future actually not so far in the future it's going to come faster than we realize is digital fashion so two aspects of that one is sizing and fitting so you're going to be able to get a 3d body scan probably using your phone um, and then have really precise measurements so you'll be able to really know already that something fits you before you order it it's not going to be you know you might not like it but you'll know that it's going to fit you and the other side of that is actually clothes that never exist 
their clothes that only exist digitally online, which is an extension of uh, filters. So you go, you see now people use, you know, you use it Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. You have filters. It sticks a pair of sunglasses on your face or whatever it is. That will extend to the whole body. And then eventually extend to video as well. I guess. Yeah, yeah. we actually, we, we're working, we're doing a project with some students from London College of Fashion. Uh, they're brilliant. And they have been digitising clothing. So we they, they sent us a, a test video yesterday and it's a guy in a room and he's walking and he's wearing, uh, they've digitised a jacket by a really great sustainable brand called Labo Mono. Um, and he's wearing that. And the reason I say it's going to come faster than you think is what's happening right now has driven us online in a way that we were talking about but people would screw their faces up and not really get it. But straight away, obviously... The, world, from- the world's had a crash course in, in virtuality, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, John, uh, how have you changed the way you work? Now, obviously, being in Sweden, um, Sweden's been commonly misrepresented as if it hasn't had a lockdown. In fact, there's been, obviously, quite a lot of voluntary behaviour change. And, of course, mass events have been cancelled. So it isn't as if the Swedes did nothing. But you've presumably been working remotely as well, have you? Yeah, I'm at, I'm, at, I'm at home in Sweden. I travel, like, basically all the time. And so I was on one of the last flights uh, out of the U.S. back to Sweden, and I've just been working at home all the time. But th- there's a misconception about Sweden. And one thing, it's like it's a country where people actually trust the experts and trust the government. And when you trust the scientific experts and not trying to debate the science yourself, then you kind of, like, let them make the calls. You know, it's like, I have no idea what is the best um approach to this but it's like you know restaurants have been open but they're not full i mean people aren't like crowding in restaurants just because they're there people are keeping a distance our entire company is working from home we'll probably be working from home for i don't know another couple of months or something probably through the summer so it's just like it's it's fine it's a bit boring one of the interesting things is how much of this behavior do you think will stick and how much of it will we just revert to the st- the previous status quo? Because my contention is some of this is going to stick. I mean, the volume of international business travel is often fatuous. Now, I-, I-, I have a very divided opinion on this, which is travel is absolutely magnificent. And those countries which I've been to for a week or for a fortnight, or I've spent, you know, in the United States, I must have spent two or three months there. What you learn and, and absorb from that is fabulous. Equally, the 48-hour business trip is kind of moronic. No, exactly. So we have a lot of discussions. We're in this like hyper growth period. So we're growing extremely fast. And if you look at like, for example, I'm building a creative department in New York. So how do I hire for that? And how do I get everyone to start working the way that that we, I mean, we've got kind of a culture in the way we work that's very, very different from you coming from the ad agency business. It's like we work very flat and very open and we, again, write our own briefs, do the work and approve it. So how do you get people? It's fine when you've been working with someone for a couple of years. This is great. You just like, you can work over email or work over anything and have a chat. And then you get the freedom to close things down when you want and sit at home and, and focus. But how do you bring new people into that system? How do you make sure that, you know, oh, you're a new person. Great. And you spend time with them day one. What do they do day two? So how, how do you get that culture in a company to grow? when the company's growing. And I think that there's a lot of aspects to this that will, you know, affect the way that we work or the way the businesses grow. You know, again, 48-hour business meeting, I think a lot of those will will be out. But still, the creative process, it's not really like six and a half hours on Zoom calls in one day. It's terrible. 
The one thing I have seen, I mean, I was talking to um, a group of people from Suntory who said, to their surprise, you can do creative ideation over Zoom, but you do it differently. And one of the things I'd always believed for many years is that the idea of cramming a brainstorm into a single event is dumb, okay? And I've always believed that you should have two events a week or more apart. Now, interestingly, the reason we tried to cram it into one event was because of the coordination costs and the travel costs of getting everybody together. And I have come to the conclusion that at the very least, you should have a kind of, you know, a two hour immersion session, which can be virtual. And then you leave it a week, you know, as a chance for, you know, as David Ogilvy would have said, the subconscious to do its work. Um, and then you have a separate event. I mean, one of the other things we're rethinking, I'd be interested to know whether and Sweden's obviously been fairly advanced in this kind of thing anyway is we think the nature of our office needs to change fundamentally because, in a sense, an open-plan office is neither flesh nor fowl, by which I mean it isn't a place where you can go away and focus in uh, isolation and peace, and nor is it ideal as a social space because you disturb other people. And so we think we need to create a much more bifurcated kind of bipolar office where it's either hyper-social or it's a library, as it were. I can see that. I can see that definitely happening. Like we're having a discussion, you know, just about so everyone's out of the New York office. No one's working. And when they come back, you know, if you're going to have social distancing in the office, you know what offices are like in New York or London. They're 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 very packed with people. And so how are you going to create that? You're not. So why should we have an office in the same way? Maybe it's meeting spaces. Maybe it's like, you know, you come in there and you relax and you work. So. I don't no, know. And of course, just as I always noticed this at university, some people went to the library to work, some people went to their room. And exactly the same thing, I think, manifests itself here. Some David Ogilvy never wrote a single thing in the office, uh, interestingly. He said there are too many distractions. I don't do anything in the office. I go into the office for meetings. This is before before the, the, the crisis here. And then I go back home and write. No, I can't either. I've never written more than sort of short email responses in the office. Can't do it. Yeah, I personally find like I end up being a bit of a night owl sometimes and to really find that focus, it's kind of when everyone else has gone to bed, shut up for the evening and then I can actually focus. So definitely, yes, yeah, certainly the office environment isn't always the best place to get work done. For Sweden, it would make possible a thing where in the winter you start work quite early, you have a break around midday for three hours and then you resume work again because, I mean, you know, in northern countries, the depressing thing about the winter is that you effectively sacrifice all your daylight to the office. Yeah, like there is no. I live in the south of Sweden. The sun goes up around 10 o'clock and sets at 3. Imagine Stockholm. It's like, I don't know, 10.30, 11, 2.30. They're, they're basically, you're living by candlelight. It's dark the whole time. It's a cave, which for me, like personally, is like very difficult now when everyone's kind of like, they've recommended that no Swede travel more than two hours distance over the summer. You know, like, don't spread the disease in the country. And it's like, if it's raining all summer, what am I going to do? Because I'm going back into the cave period of just darkness for six months. And it's like, I don't know, it's very difficult to deal with if you weren't necessarily born in Sweden and raised in Sweden and can deal with the darkness. So, but the thing is, is in the winter in Sweden, it's never really even light. It's just a little bit lighter. It's just different shades of gray. <laughs> 
And there is that question, which is, you know, you could jig working hours a bit to acknowledge that, because it does seem pretty crazy that you spend the only three hours of daylight essentially indoors in artificial light. But I think that's going to be the cool thing with this is that people are going to find different ways to work and they're going to be allowed to work in different ways. And if I'm like a morning person, I can get up and work early in the morning. You know, it's like groups will find ways to, to, to work together. Like we have no one going into the office, but three or four people meet at an outdoor cafe and have a chat and then they'll be like wow that was good now i can go back to my space so i think it's going to profoundly change the way that we interact the way we work jen mentioned the fact that she was a bit of a night owl i've always grumbled slightly in offices that um, early birds tend to bully night owls and extroverts tend to bully introverts yeah, because so, you're a night owl, you're not at your best first thing in the morning, and like no, people no. Are asking you a lot of stuff, you're like, oh, not yet, I'm not ready for this. One, one of the things I've noticed, <laughs> one of the things I've noticed is, you know, if you have a, if you know, if you wanted this podcast to take place at seven a.m., I wouldn't, you know, I would have been a bit grumpy, but I wouldn't have minded. If you have a seven a.m. physical meeting, that means getting up at five in the morning. And well, I guess um, you have core, you need agreeable core hours. I mean, people I know who work in uh, uh, companies with flexible working already, you have core hours where you need to be present and available for meetings whether that's online or in person before this and, and then other than that it's more flexible so I think it's some kind of parameters that you agree and then outside of that you can be flexible I think that's perfect yeah because one, one of the things I have noticed is that um, I think there's the opportunity here for a kind of you know a little bit of a step change in white collar productivity to be honest and that you know there are elements to zoom meetings which are kind of more democratic and more interesting I think than physical meetings were being able to add something to the chat, for example. So if you've got some someone who maybe doesn't is slightly introverted and doesn't speak up in a meeting, uh, yeah. they they can add ideas into the chat panel um, at the side and and get get their ideas and opinions. I mean, interestingly, there was a hugely effective experiment done about twenty years ago where you held a meeting where people simply typed. I don't think they were anonymous. I can't remember. But it was a very, very successful experiment because people who normally wouldn't have said things did. And equally, people who normally would have talked just to keep the noise going, you know, spent more time quiet. I mean, the strange thing is, if you think about it, if you think about the extraordinary amount of effort that's put into optimising efficiency and experimentation in areas such as, you know, productivity in manufacturing, and you look at the dismal amount of thought and attention that's been paid to administrative and managerial productivity, it's, you know, it's completely out of whack. I mean, you know, video conferencing has been obviously a potential game changer for a long time. What I discovered with my own staff is very interesting, is because I was a huge early adopter and enthusiast about two years ago before this happened, and I discovered it wasn't enough to give people permission to do this. You had to encourage it, because if you made it permission, it felt like a concession, and therefore by taking up a concession, you were kind of burning reputational capital a little bit. Every time you worked from home, you were just losing a little bit of something because you were taking advantage of a favour. And I realised you had to actually actively promote it and say, no, 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 I prefer you work from home before you got it. Yeah, I, I certainly I worked with a company where you, it's, it's just part of you get one day a month at home. So it, like it's, it's, it's training people to say, like, I'm working from home and it's OK. And it's actually that's part of our company culture to do that. 
but there's you know there's such a kind of oh I've got to show up early and stay late to make it look like I'm working really hard and then that oh you speak to people and so many people will have just hung on and stayed a bit late where they haven't really got that much to do because they want to look good in front of their boss or their manager so there's a there's that's a massive culture to sort of uh, take on and change for sure. This is the whole theory behind parental leave, you know, governmental paid parental leave in Sweden, is that uh, a few years back, they they made it mandatory that the father takes parental leave for a certain amount. Let's say that it's 16 months so that you can take 16 months as a couple, but the father has to take parental leave for half of that or for five months. And they, they made that mandatory because otherwise it wouldn't be socially accepted. You know, it would be just like an excuse like, oh, I'm taking off like, why? You're our top salesperson. We need to meet our quotas this week. You know, so it's like, I think that you do need to actually say, no, really stay home. And it's better that we work like this. And then it becomes like something that's cool and, and accepted. That was a fascinating chat. John Schoolcroft and Jen Charon, huge thanks for your time. Very welcome. Thank you. And uh, that has been absolutely really fascinating. So two brands which in one sense have nothing in common and in another sense have an enormous amount in common. Because the whole question is disrupting, and as you quite rightly said, John, most change happens sideways, which I think is a fantastic outtake for this talk. Well, that's all for this episode of On Brand. This podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. For more information on powering your business growth, visit the website, which unsurprisingly is alfinsight.com, A-L-F insight.com. Uh, the series is produced and edited magnificently by Ultimate Sound and Vision. I'm Rory Sutherland. Thank you very much indeed. And um, see you next time, as it were. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.